Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. More than a dozen land-grant universities continue to rake in millions of dollars every year from a 160-year-old law that transferred Indian land, sometimes illegally and dishonestly, into state trust land for higher education. That's what a team of reporters from Grist uncovered after a year of research. Meanwhile, Native students and tribal colleges face financial disparities that the same land-grant universities are trying to reckon with. We'll hear more after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Researchers in northern Michigan are trying out a new project that they hope will deepen our understanding of how aquatic ecosystems work. Interlochen Public Radio's Ellie Katz has more. Starting this spring, biologists with the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians will begin submerging video cameras near reefs. Chris Hessel is a fisheries biologist with the band. He says cameras can capture snapshots of animal movement and interaction without disturbing them. The idea is to better see how underwater animals interact with their world in ways that aren't all that different from humans. People need to utilize grocery stores, gas stations, fast food restaurants. So you you have these different components within urban development where you have people who are utilizing different facilities for different needs. He says fish and other animals also move from place to place like this, spending different amounts of time in different areas, interacting with different species. But we just don't quite understand how or why. Hessel says using video could help biologists start to crack the code. For National Native News, I'm Ellie Katz. The Wilton Rancheria and the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office have entered an agreement to establish a framework for cooperation and collaboration related to public safety and law enforcement within the jurisdictional boundaries of the tribe. The tribe's located about 15 miles southeast of the California state capital in Sacramento. Wilton Rancheria Chairman Jesus Tarango says the signing of the agreement is a big day for Indian country. Sacramento County Sheriff Jim Cooper. One of the goals of the agreement is to better address missing and murdered indigenous people. Chairman Tarango. Department and the sheriff's department could get behind us, and then we could go out and show other communities, you know, maybe they're going to add to 
Sheriff Cooper says MMIP is an important issue, especially as women and girls go missing across the country, and to partner with tribes to work on solving cases and prevent it from happening in the future. The agreement was signed last week during a MMIP summit hosted by the Wilton Rancheria and the Yurok Tribe. This story is a collaboration with First Nations Experience Television with support from the Public Welfare Foundation. Leaders from Wisconsin's 11 tribes are gathered at the state capitol in Madison for Thursday's State of the Tribes Address. This year's speech is being delivered by Forest County Potawatomi Chairman James Crawford. The annual address lays out tribal priorities. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. When President Abraham Lincoln signed the Morrill Act into law 160 years ago, land-grant universities had access to a steady stream of money from millions of acres taken from tribes. A team of reporters from Grist, a nonprofit media company focused on climate change and justice, followed the land and money trail for a year. They found that nearly 9 million acres, for which tribes were either paid nothing or pennies on the dollar for, are set up for energy resource development, grazing, and other uses. The land generates many millions of dollars every year in 14 universities. The investigation sheds more light on the foundation of land-grant universities and the land inequalities that have existed for Native people since the reservation era began. Some land-grant universities are only just now acknowledging the discrepancy and trying to reconcile with Native students and tribes they have a responsibility to serve. We have a link to the article and project by Grist on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. We also have two of the reporters joining us to share this story with you, our listeners. You can also share your questions and comments, such as, how should land-grant universities make amends with tribes? What about with current students? Or here's an idea, should they give land back? Call us, let us know what you think. 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Speaking with us from Eastern Europe by way of Zoom is Tristan Atone. He's the editor-at-large for Grist, and he's Kiowa. Tristan, hello, and welcome back to NAC. Onde, onde, Bobo. Thanks for having me back, Sean. And also on our show today, joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is 
Maria Perrazzo Rose. She is a reporter and spatial data analyst at Grist. Maria, you've been on the show as well. Welcome back. All right, we'll get Maria dialed in here in just a moment. Uh, Tristan, this is such an intriguing, compelling story. I mean, geez, dating back all the way to Abraham Lincoln, the founding of so many high-profile universities in this country. Are we safe to assume that most of what Grist uncovered in its investigation can be traced all the way back to the Morrill Act? Well, to some degree. the uh, Our original reporting around the Morrill Act appeared in High Country News about uh, four years ago now, actually. Um, and uh, what we've done with the uh, most recent investigation, this place, Trust here, is sort of build on that by looking at universities that were seeded by the Morrill Act. Um, and then look at additional land laws that that more or less divvied up indigenous lands for the uh, benefit of these institutions. Now, what other policies or events in addition to the Moral Act contributed to putting so much Indian land into the hands of these universities, public universities? Well, there are hundreds of uh, land laws on the books, but uh, we really wanted to focus on something called enabling acts um, and enabling acts. Um, are more or less the uh, laws that graduate territories into states. So if you want to become from the territory of Arizona to the state of Arizona, you have to pass an enabling act. Um, and in these enabling acts, all most all most states have them, and definitely all states in the West uh, require enabling acts. Um, there are more or less gifts of free land by the federal government to these states to prop up uh, institutions in the state. So that can be higher education, that can be K through 12 schools, it can be penitentiaries, hospitals, um, you know, you name it, it's in there. Uh, it's these sort of like infrastructure projects. Think of it as like a giant check from a rich parent to their child to get off the ground with their business ventures. And Tristan, let's talk about that giant check as you describe it. I mean, how much money are we talking about? I know one number in the article goes up above $2 billion. Yeah, well, I mean, from, you know, statehood in these various states to now, there is, there's, there's been no research about what those numbers are. But what we were able to track down in the lands that we identified through enabling acts going to these Moral Act universities um, was that between 2018 and 2022, uh, approximately $6.6 .6 billion were uh, generated in revenue for these institutions. Um, you know, and, uh, a, lot, a lot of that comes from Texas, from oil and gas. I believe it was uh, um, uh, a couple of billion dollars uh, just in uh, just each year alone. But um, these uh, we're, we're talking about uh, revenues in the billions that are coming off of these uh, lands that uh, are in indigenous lands and resources that are going to um, these universities. Revenues in the billions, and it sounds like uh, this is, is, is ongoing. I mean, these universities continue to make money year in, year out. Well, yeah, that was the big thing that we really wanted to uh, drive home with this story. In our past uh, reporting around the Moral Act, for instance, uh, it looked at a, a piece of legislation from, as you highlighted, the 1860s. And it was very easy for a lot of people to say, well, this is just history. This is a history project. This has no bearing. Um, what we wanted to do with this story is be able to continue to push uh, those ideas that those laws have continuing effects on us. 
Um, and uh, these these lands that we're looking at now are producing revenue as we speak. They're engaged in oil and gas production, mineral mining, timber, you name it. Um, they are designed and by law have to produce income for these institutions. So this is happening as we speak. It is most most of these revenues. I mean, you describe oil and gas, timber, mineral. Is it all resource based or is it any of it like have to do with commercial real estate or anything like that? Uh, yeah, we found commercial real estate, which is common in Arizona. Um, we, you know, we find stuff like recreation, you know, people are hunting or hiking on some of these lands, but overwhelmingly it's, it's used for extractive industries, including uh, agriculture and grazing. Um, you know, the thing about these, these trust lands, these state trust lands that we're looking at here um, is that by law, uh, the agencies, the state agencies that are responsible for them are required by law to uh, make them profitable for institutions. So it does complicate sort of uh, the actions that can happen in the future, um, you know, because they are, uh, there would have to be sort of a legal change to, uh, uh, to say like, well, we want these for conservation, for instance, or we want to re return these to, uh, to tribal nations, for instance, but um, they, uh, they are engaged mostly in whatever is most profitable. And that sounds like in most cases, that's, uh, resource extraction in some way, shape, or form, Tristan. Now, you identified millions of acres of land designated for, for energy resource development like we're talking about. How did you find that out? Where did you get that information? Um, I'm not sure if Maria is back on the line here. Um, this was sort of her department. And I think she could, she could talk more specifically about it than I can. All right. Yeah. Maria, um, let's go ahead and, and reintroduce you because I, I think we had a little bit of an issue with the line, but Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Maria Perrazzo-Rose, reporter and spatial data analyst at Grist. Maria, hello and welcome back to NEC. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Glad my line is working. Yeah, me too. Well, let's talk a little bit more uh, about the, the research that you and the others performed. Uh, how did you find out all this information, all these acres of land designated for energy resource development? Yeah, so specifically trying to find out this information about land use activity, uh, I think is one of the most unique things about this data set. For one, we had to kind of amass all of these state trust lands in general and just map out where they were. But for that, we were really kind of querying specific data sets that had all that information together. When we wanted to find out the information about land use activity, we had to go through all of these different state databases to try and find spatial information about any and all kinds of land use activities. So we were looking at resource extraction and within that, you know, looking at ag and grazing, we were looking at coal, we were looking at um, easements and infrastructure, many, many different kinds of land use activity. And then with that, we kind of created a second data set that mapped out where all of those activities were happening. And if you can imagine, the analysis is kind of like putting those two maps on top of each other. So then that way we could collect that information about land use activity whenever it was showing up on or on top of one of the parcels that we had in our state trust land data set. That was again, sending revenue to higher education universities. And we added a lot more like specificity within this, for example, ensuring that if we had a, uh, a parcel that had a certain rights type, for example, a subsurface rights type, that if we had any kind of surface activity going on there, 
that wouldn't show up. So we weren't conflating, you know, grazing as an activity if the right type of a parcel was subsurface. So there was a lot of a lot of navigating, a lot of data, um, and and constantly kind of checking uh, across state databases what they had available to use. Maria, this sounds like an incredibly detailed and labor-intensive research project. Uh, what's the most difficult part? I mean, all these different processes and working parts that you just described, what's the hardest part? Yeah, um, there were so many different parts of this project that were really difficult. Uh, but I think two of the, the themes that made it particularly challenging uh, were that they were. this was a historical data set and that the scale of it was enormous. And so when I say historical, what I mean is before we were even really working with the data, we had to undergo this process of narrowing down the states that we actually needed to focus on. So we know that we wanted to look at um, higher education land-grant universities. And so that meant, and that we're currently receiving revenue from, uh, from these state trust lands. So we were going through all of these different states that we know have this state trust land infrastructure set up, and some of them, you know, used to send revenue to land-grant universities. Uh, some of them, you know, had multiple different grants that were going to the universities, and it was just parsing through all of that uh, was, was really tricky, and in large part because when we were working with state agencies, there were some people in those offices who just were unfamiliar with this information, uh, which is no poor reflection on them at all. It's more that this this story that we're covering, the information here is so deeply embedded in really old policy and that it just takes so much clarifying old language to make sure we're getting it right. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Tristan Atone and Maria Perrazzo-Rose about this investigation, this report from Grist, nonprofit media company. Give us a call. Questions and comments, 1-800-996-2848. A murder trial in Alaska is making headlines around the world, and it is dredging up drama over the continuing disproportionate victimization of Alaska Native women. We'll get the latest on the trial of Brian Smith and put it into context of previous high-profile violence and abuse cases in Alaska. That's on the next Native America Calling. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. You are tuned in to Native America Calling. We're talking about how land-grant universities continue to make millions of dollars off land transferred, stolen, or bargained away from tribes more than 160 years ago. Montana State University, Utah State University, University of Wyoming, Colorado State University. Those are just some of the institutions that benefited from a federal policy of dispossession. Journalists with Grist brought this information to light after a year of research. And the question remains... What should universities do to reconcile taking Native lands? 
We're waiting for your call. 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. One of our guests, Maria Perrazzo-Rose with Grist uh, Media Company, did a lot of this investigative research here. And uh, Maria, I just shared uh, some of the universities, uh, these 14 universities. Do you have the remaining names of the universities? Are you comfortable sharing that information online? Uh, yeah, naming all 14, you mean? Sure, yeah, if you could. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Now it feels like uh, making sure I, I know all of them <laughs> off the top of my head. Let's see if I can do it alphabetically. Um, University of Arizona, Colorado State, University of Idaho, University of Minnesota, Montana State University, New Mexico State University, North Dakota State University, Oklahoma State University, South Dakota State University, Texas A&M, Utah State University, Washington State University, University of Wisconsin, and University of Wyoming. All right. Thank you, Maria. You get an A for the <laughs> pulling those up so quickly. But you know what? That's amazing because there, those all, so many of those schools have huge, huge uh, Native populations, and many of them are located in states with, with large Native American populations as well and, and Native lands. So really fascinating here. Now, all this data and this information, how readily available was it? And let's talk a little bit about the transparency here. Yeah, so it, to get the information on state trust lands, there it was available to varying degrees. There are some states that do a really good job of keeping their data clean, making it publicly accessible, and having clear pathways to there. And then there are other states that are completely on the opposite end of that spectrum. And there was one state where the data we, that we got was in a Excel spreadsheet that didn't really have spatial data and required a significant amount of very like bespoke processing. Um, and there are some states you know, where we had to file public records requests that took a long time to fulfill. Uh, so it was it was a a wide spectrum in terms of getting data, and then once we did get the data, actually cleaning it and standardizing it was also a, a whole other thing to wrestle. Now, I understand that there were some cases where university and state officials did not have answers about where their money comes from or how it's being spent. Uh, is that because of the complexity of how some of these university budgets work, or were they just perhaps uh, not being more forthcoming? I think it's a combination, uh, and I think Tristan can certainly speak to this too. Uh, from my perspective, a large part of it is that these streams of income uh, are are so old um, and that for some states and universities, the, the names of these funds can vary. And um, like one of the things that we had to figure out is that there are these uh, trust names, which are essentially kind of the, the buckets where money sits and then it's distributed to the associated beneficiaries. But it's not always clear uh, why a university might receive money from one of those trusts. For example, University of Arizona uh, gets money from trust names that are associated with the university, but they also get funds from things like military institutions as a trust name or uh, other things where it's unclear as to why that might be related uh, when just looking at the trust name. So clarifying that information in the data and through the reports, uh, I can imagine, is 
very complex for us and probably just as complex for people working with the data. Uh, but Tristan did a lot of the finding financial information. Uh, Tristan, if you want to share thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, to uh, to Maria's point, um, you know, the the sort of the back end of this information on where money comes from and goes. Um, University of Arizona was a really great example because even the uh, the uh, the state agency there was kind of confused by a number of our requests toward the end of our reporting process, uh, just because of the nature of the name of the uh, the trust funds that are associated. So um, when it comes to investment money, it's obviously super, super complicated. Um, and uh, I think uh, opens the door for a lot more research and reporting for folks that are really interested in this stuff. Thanks, Tristan. And let's go back again to to the history here in, in how these universities got started. I mean, is there any official or implied responsibility that land grants are held to any promise to the native people who once occupied this land? Well, I mean, you know, generally the, you know, land grant institutions have been regarded as sort of the people's colleges, right? Um, you know, this it's, it's an ahistorical look, obviously, with the information that we have these days, but, um, you know, democracy's college and people's colleges, which means that it should be accessible to just about anybody who wants to go to these institutions. Uh, but in our most recent investigation, we looked at how uh, a, a Tohono Autumn student uh, at the University of Arizona on Tohono Autumn land profiting from Tohono Autumn resources uh, couldn't afford to go to school there. Um, and I think speaks uh, to sort of the failures of that system to really support uh, not only just general students who are hoping to go, uh, but also uh, an inability to sort of recognize the debt uh, that they owe to these students. Um, so I, I think um, when, it, when it comes to sort of like what these institutions should be doing, there's it's different for each, each university, but um, it does get us into the area of sort of what universities should be doing in response to this, um, which we can talk more about. But, uh, you know, there's uh, there, there are some debts here that these institutions owe um, to indigenous peoples, um, and uh, many of them are refusing to even sort of look at them. Well, let's talk more about that response from universities. I mean, what are you hearing from from the schools that have been identified in this project and and the previous one you mentioned too with the student uh, in Arizona? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're not hearing a lot. Um, you know, the uh, in response to our reporting from twenty twenty in High Country News, we did uh, see a lot of universities start moving toward this sort of like free tuition for Native students. But as we discovered in reporting on this latest project that only covers the actual tuition line, which is usually like a half to a third of the entire cost of going to school. Uh, but um, in terms of response, you know, we, we have seen folks saying that they're, 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 they take the history seriously, you know, University of Minnesota, Washington State, uh, you know, even Utah, you know, a lot of institutions say that we recognize the history, we recognize our part in it, and we're trying to do our, our best with it. Now, you know, whether or not uh, we all think that's the best of what universities could be doing is probably a different question, but uh, some folks have acknowledged this history. Others have continued to ignore it. Texas A&M is a great example. They've never answered a single uh, email response from us for any of our investigative reporting around their, their history or lands, um, you know, basically in, in almost, yeah, five years. Mm. Let's go to the phones. Our first caller of the day is Chanupa, listening on Keeley Radio in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Welcome to the show, Chanupa. 
Hey, thank you for having me, Sean. Listen to that gentleman that was talking. <clears throat> Many years ago, our people were struggling with what they call the independent structure. And those were two acts that were uh, produced where in 1832, you and I and then even the caller there, the, the gentleman that you're interviewing, weren't born then. But these already set precedent a long time ago. They say, Meaning that it's up to the people to give you consent to use it for education purposes and so forth. But when you look at the 1832 and the 1844, these two are acts where one has to be permitted that you have to get consent, full consent from the native people. The 1844, on the other hand, is our independent territorial land base, which is, you know, a good educational piece for people if they really want to look at the North, what's going on today in February 22nd, 2024. But I proud these kind of subjects that do come on, Sean, and Thank you for having me from the Pinewood Indian Reservation here at Keeley Radio. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, Chanupa, appreciate that call. Tristan Chanupa, he calls into the show a lot. He's got a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, and he just referenced uh, these acts from 1832-1844. Are you familiar with any of these issues, and do they in any way apply to any of the research that you and, uh, and Maria have performed? Yeah, uh, thanks for the call, Chanupa. Uh, I'm not familiar with those two particular pieces of legislation, but what I am familiar with uh, in terms of what Chanupa is talking about is that idea of getting permission, that idea that's now sort of known as free prior and informed consent uh, when it comes to indigenous lands and resources. So um, while I can't say definitively, at least at this moment, whether those two particular acts um, are specifically related to this investigation. The broader idea, I think, that Chanupa is talking about absolutely does uh, um, apply here, is that, um, you know, the free prior and informed consent is was not ever something that was, um, uh, that was sought by the U.S. government when taking lands from us, and it's not something that these universities um, are asking for when it comes to uh, the resources, the money, or how the land is being used. So um, th that is what I could say around that topic. All right, and let's talk more now about uh, the response from these universities or any type of reconciliation. And to do that, I'm going to introduce a third guest on our show. He is joining us from Bloomfield, Colorado. His name is Rick Williams, and he is the executive producer of People of the Sacred Land. I think that might be executive director. I'm not quite sure. But at any rate, he's Oglala, Lakota, and Cheyenne. Hello, Rick. It's great to have you on the show. Good morning. How are you doing today? Um, you know, I, I, I've been dealing with this issue ever since Land Grab came out um, back in, the, in 20. And we worked with Ohio State University to um, try to create greater awareness about the takings. Um, and this, if you can imagine, Ohio State University took land from 105 different nations. Um, and so it's pretty complex when you start getting into to those kinds of things. My most recent work was with the Falcon Conference in October of 2022. Um, I did a presentation there, and I gave some specific feedback about um, 
you know, what needs to be happening at these institutions. For example, every 1862 land-grant institution university must acknowledge the land transactions from each, each nation. And by that, I mean specifically identifying the land, publicly identifying the land, and also identifying the resources that are coming off of each one of those properties. Here in Colorado, Colorado State has 19,000 acres still under control. Um, they have 43,000 acres of mineral rights, um, plus they have the endowment. The average citizen in Colorado is never going to know anything about that because it's not disclosed. So part of, part of our, our, our request is that we would like to see a forensic audit going back 25 years showing all of the resources in the last 25 years that have been generated by, by all of those funds, including, and I was glad, you know, um, the, the earlier talk, speaker talked about um, the state um, uh, land boards. And um, in, in addition to the, to the land boards, there's also in Colorado, there's the school fund. And that has to do with the distribution of of um, land in the, for schools. Um, the second thing that I said is I, I felt that it was important that these institutions should have a relationship, a nation-to-nation -nation relationship with every one of the colleges that they've got land from. And it has to be an extensive relationship. It can't be, you know, well, we acknowledge, land acknowledgements um, or relationship acknowledgements are not good enough. It needs to be substantial. And in fact, every one of those institutions should create an external board to oversee the directions of how that money is going to be used in the future. Um, and in, in that regard, I would recommend that every one of these land-grant institutions that have uh, dishonorably taken land or stolen land must assign 90% of, of the portion of the, the future assets um, to support and increase has access for higher education to citizens of the nation that lost land. And finally, I think there should be um, an annual report required by the USDA um, for compliance on these kinds of things, because um, going forward, we want to know more about what's going on. And the last thing I'll say is these failures by the United States Department of Agriculture to react responsibility must be juxtaposed against the, the concept of make them farmers, a clause that was in almost every treaty. There's sufficient documentation that this is a trust responsibility of the USDA and the United States government, and it has been ignored for 150 years. Rick, you share uh, three actions you'd like to see. Uh, acknowledgement of these land transactions that occurred years ago, nation-to-nation -nation relationships between these universities and these tribal nations, and also assigning a large percentage of these assets to supporting uh, Native American nations, and also this annual report. Uh, from what you can see, from what you know, uh, obviously there are some universities that are really failing in this regard, but do you know of any universities that are doing a pretty good job, or at least you're happy with at this point with the efforts that they're making towards some of these uh, events and uh, these actions that you'd like to see unfold? The one that I can address directly is South Dakota State University, and it is responsive. And the primary reason that it's responsive is they've got an American Indian president um, who's from Rosebud. And because of his, his work, they have been progressive and, and, and responding to the issues. 
That's interesting. South Dakota State University in Brookings. Um, Rick, uh, you also do a lot of work with tribal colleges. And let's talk about the tribal colleges a little bit. We got about a minute before we have to break, but uh, we can get started here. What kind of access to funding sources do tribal colleges have? Uh, in any way, are they similar to these land-grant universities? Do they have the same opportunities? Um, they have the same opportunities, but the proportion amount of funding going to the tribal colleges versus the mainstream land-grant institutions is disproportionate. For every $1 that the tribal college will get, a mainstream uh, land-grant institution will get $100. Um, that's pretty, that's, that's, that's not right. Huge, huge discrepancy. Certainly Rick Williams. Uh, we're talking with Rick Williams right now. He is with the people of the sacred land. He is Oglala Lakota and Cheyenne also on our show, Tristan Atone from the Kiowa nation. And we have Maria Perrazzo Rose, who is a spatial data analyst with Grist and also a reporter. And I would like to get some calls going here, folks. I want to hear your thoughts on this. I know we have a lot of people in our Native communities who have gone to some of these schools we're talking about today or are thinking about going to the, some of these schools. What do you think with regard to some of these issues? No-cost tuition, perhaps, or uh, some of these acknowledgments that should be made for these lands. Give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Land-grant universities are our focus today. If you are a student or a graduate from a land-grant university that we're talking about, how is that school coming to terms with its past? Are they providing more Native programming? No-cost tuition for Native students. Do you feel that's enough? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got Rick Williams on the line right now with People of the Sacred Land. And Rick, I want to just ask you for a moment here, because we, I, already on the show we've heard this, this term, free tuition. And I remember years ago I went to Haskell. And anybody who's gone to Haskell within the last 40 years knows Manny King. And I remember Manny King sat us down and he told us, don't ever let anybody tell you your tuition here is free. It's not free. Your ancestors paid for that tuition with their blood, with their land. What's your thoughts on that? Should we be using terms other than free tuition when we talk about some of these restitutions that these universities should perhaps be providing? We should be talking about much, much more. Um, I, 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 know Man, I knew Manny really well. He's a good friend of mine. Worked with him over the years. Um, so minimally an institution should be looking at for every tribe that contributed land to that endowment should be providing not tuition, but full rides, um, tuition, books, fees, room and board, minimally. Um, in addition to that, they should be finding ways to build relationships with those tribal communities that have economic needs in agriculture that have never been addressed. And typically, a mainstream institution, you know, serves as that that entity to do that. 
and you know i would expect that they should be doing that with our with our indian communities i think it goes um even further than just free tuition um for example i think at colorado state university there should be a veterinary program where they are they are admitting an indian veterinary program where they are admitting 10 students every year as a cohort because we know cohorts do better in 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 educational situations where these students are are being able to to get their get their veterinary license but also have the opportunity to take some special courses for like example buffalo management or um management um grassland restoration management those kinds of things are really needed in our communities and they're not being addressed this is an opportunity for these institutions to have some good faith step up and do these kinds of things Rick, let's talk about some other schools that apparently uh, seem to be headed in the right direction. University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Minnesota, uh, they both created programs that are designed to teach the truth about the land that they're on and they continue to profit from. What do you think about those efforts to acknowledge this past? Is that a step in the right direction? Wouldn't it be nice if every one of the other institutions did that? And, you know, you have to remember that there was considerable pressure on Minnesota to do that. This didn't, they didn't do it on their own. Um, there was community pressure um, statewide to make it happen. And, um, you know, I would hope that um, the leaders of institutions across the country would recognize that the potential opportunity to, to, to really change the history going forward and take advantage of it by developing those relationships with the tribes and and finding better ways to to meet the needs of our people in higher education. Rick, tell us more about people of the sacred land. What exactly do you folks do? Um, right now, we are in the midst of a truth restoration and education commission that is privately funded to 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 reveal um, the horrific history of of the state of Colorado. And you only need to ask one question to fully understand what happened. At, and all you have to ask is why are there no Indian reservations on the Front Range or the Eastern Plains of Colorado? And there's a simple one-word answer: genocide. And it's 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 been a mystery. Um, I don't know if it's if, if it's a mystery or if it's a conspiracy where the information about you know what happened here has not been revealed. And that's what we're doing. We'll be coming out with a final report in a couple of months about um, the history of Colorado and the truth. Now, Rick, let's talk about another possibility, perhaps, in the idea of some of these universities returning, perhaps, some of these parcels of land that were taken all these years ago. Um, what's your thought on that? Do you think that's realistic, an expectation? And if so, what would it take to accomplish that? I, I think that's fully realistic, and I think it should be um, it should be started immediately. And it begins with the institution um, doing co-management of those assets, those that land with the with a, a plan, um, a short-term plan, say five years, of uh, returning those assets to the tribes that they belong to. Um, there's no reason why that shouldn't be happening. All right. Um, and, and particularly, particularly in cases where you can identify that that land was taken illegally, there is no question that land should be returned. All right. Well, let's, uh, I want to ask Maria, bring her back into the conversation. Rick shares, okay, if that were to happen, if this land would be returned, could be returned, it would be 
very important to identify if that land was taken illegally or not. And Maria, with the research that you've done, is it possible to track that, to connect some of these parcels with, uh, and determine whether or not they were taken illegally or perhaps by other means? Seems like that'd be going pretty deep into your data. It would be a very deep cut of the data, but definitely something I encourage and definitely something that's possible. Uh, one of the things that adds a lot of texture to our data set is that we're able to connect it to uh, connect each parcel to land sessions that occurred. Uh, so when the federal government was like taking these large swaths of land that were then redistributed out back to states through all of these various acts that we're discussing now, like the Moral Act, like the Homestead Act. And if you're if we have this information on our on our github site if people want to look at that data but what you're able to do is look deeper into the background of any in individual session and find out either how much was paid if it was taken by force it was taken by seizure all of this really rich information that's there um, and i think that can provide some of that context that perhaps might uh, inform the way in which that land was taken Maria, one of the challenges I would imagine with your work is just uh, being able to take this data and then present it in a way that's understandable to to lay people like myself who don't have a background in in uh, data spatial uh, spatial data analysis like you do. And I understand you do workshops uh, to help the public uh, crunch data and understand, don't you? Yeah, we've had a few trainings, uh, happy to do more. And I think one of the things we've been discussing is uh, trying to do more trainings uh, for tribal leaders specifically to be able to use this data since so much of it directly pertains to them. Um, and I think one of the really powerful elements of this project is that we have so much of this information shown through maps. Um, as a very intense map lover, I feel like showing that data in a way that people can look at something and, and more visually be able to place themselves literally in relation to that data because it's on a map, I think is a really effective way to communicate this information. Um, and it's definitely something that we're applying to, to some upcoming stories too, like sharing and conveying that information on maps where you can add more information like where reservations are or other visual things that people can more easily connect to, um, perhaps more than numbers, you know. Upcoming stories you mentioned. And Tristan, I want to go back to you because you've already started on a new story that's coming out soon with regard to some of these issues. What can you tell us about that? Uh, well, I am the editor on the story and Maria is the writer. So I'm actually going to pass it back to her since it's her work uh, <laughs> and it's great work. And I, I, I want her to be able to talk about it. So I'm going to pass the mic. All right, Maria, tell us the story. Yeah, thanks, Tristan. Uh, well, one of the things that we were finding uh, as we were analyzing the data is that there were these state trust lands that were showing up on current reservation land. And we didn't know why, we didn't know how that was happening, uh, but it was something we'd seen across maybe half a dozen uh, or more reservations. So what we did uh, for further research was we expanded our, uh, our uh, the group of state trust lands that we were looking at. So instead of just looking at state trust lands that sent revenue to higher education beneficiaries, we looked at all state trust lands that sent revenue to any and all beneficiaries. 
Then we compared that information to where reservations in the U.S. are. And ultimately, we found that there's 1.6 million acres of state trust lands that exist on current tribal reservation land. And the implications of this, you know, yeah, <laughs> this, was, this was from policy that happened, okay. you know, in the 1800s, but clearly has so many impacts today. It's such a visual map. Uh, but also, once you start looking into it and looking more at it, you can see the ways in which it really, really complicates uh, and threatens tribal jurisdiction over their lands and the ability for tribes to manage their own lands as they see fit, because these lands are state-owned, state-managed, and states don't have to consult with tribes on how to manage these lands. Absolutely. And especially now with some of these issues that we're seeing in certain states with regard to jurisdiction and, and whatnot, this just sounds like a, a fascinating story we're really going to be paying attention to uh, as it develops, and uh, but but very complex as well, and something perhaps we can discuss on a future show, Maria. Yeah, yeah, would love to. All right. Rick, I want to go back to you, and let's talk a little bit more about some of these land-grant universities. And uh, earlier, Maria shared the names of these universities. These are big, big universities and billions of dollars. And, and you know, in many ways, a lot of times people will think of these universities now, they're almost more like, like corporate entities in terms of, of how they operate, the power and the influence they have. If it's not these uh, revenues that they're generating from these these trusts, uh, it's these multi-million dollar athletic programs and such. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that in terms of just the growth and the scope and the influence of these universities and, and how that all factors into these issues we're talking about today. Well, you know, it, clearly every one of these institutions have got some significant wealth. They've got significant endowments. Um, they are, most of them are doing financially well and, and, have, and probably will continue to do so. But the one thing that is lacking with each of them is a commitment to American Indian people. And part of that commitment has to be that our tribal leaders need to step up, um, that the leaders of each one of our nations needs to step up and challenge um, those institutions who have taken their land. I think that's an important part. But also we need NCAI and, and, and Colt and, and USET to step up and, and begin promoting um, positions of, of that, that, that call for greater accountability and return of assets or assignment of assets that will make a difference for our people. Um, I think those are the kinds of things that, that I want to see. And by the way, um, Tristan, you know, this stuff is just been inspirational for me. I wished I would have known this when I was going to school, um, you know, 50 years ago that, you know, that these, they, they had these kinds of assets because I think it would have changed the history of Indian education in, in, in the United States, if we'd have had greater access 50 years ago, um, it's unfortunate it's coming out now. Um, no, it is fortunate it's coming out now, but you know the history could be significantly different. Rick, let's also talk about uh, people that might be perhaps alumni from these universities. I mean, as we shared earlier, a lot of these schools have significant Native American student populations. Um, what would you like to see folks who have maybe gone to school at these schools or are current students, uh, what role perhaps could those individuals play just on a more grassroots level? I, I think every one of the um, alumni of every one of these institutions should organize and develop their own positions on what they would like to see. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very um, aggressive in, 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 in this and 
I would like to see alumni go back to these institutions and ask for refunds um, because because of mm. uh, the institutions knew or had to have known that um, there was money coming in that was Indian money. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to make another, you know, um, Chinupa brought up a very important point, and I wanted to clarify what that is. 1834, the Trade and Intercourse Act, first article says all land west of the Mississippi is titled as Indian country. Indian country uh, is, is the definition of legal title to the land. So all of the land is in question here. And so you, you have vast, vast areas of um, land that um, was not ceded or was never um, taken uh, uh, according to the way it should have been taken. And there's, no necess- there's not necessarily a tribe assigned to those lands. So, I mean, we have to think about those areas, too. Tristan, I want to go back to you, and we're going to have to wind down the show here. I'm going to probably give you the last word with about a minute to go. But, I mean, this just seems like such a a complex and, and, and very involved issue here. And I'm just curious about your thoughts with regard to how well the general public and even perhaps some of these universities, some of the faculty and some of the other, you know, the, their their boards and their trustees, how well do they understand these relationships that they're involved with between these land grants and perhaps these higher education policies? Seems like a lot to untangle. And, and how do you address that in terms of your editorial expertise to present these stories in a way that that are not only going to resonate, but also people are going to be able to understand? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the short answer is I don't think any of these institutions know this history well. Um, and I, I think on that, I, I want to just uh, go back for a second and recognize Rick's comments a moment ago. Uh, I mean, Rick, th- thank you for reading this work and thank you for engaging with it. I mean, I, I agree. I wish this work was out years ago as well. And I, I think it's cool that uh, that you think the course of Indian education would have been much different. But I do want to recognize you and your work and that you are changing the course of Indian education right now. You're doing the thing uh, that you're you're talking about. And I, I really want to thank you for your work. It's what inspires us to keep doing this work. And it's what it, it's what is inspiring us to make these connections more visible and try to do as much education as possible to make sure that people know this history, that people know this information, um, but most importantly, that people can engage with this information too. In this project and our original land grab, grab universities project, these are open source investigations. And we wanna make sure that anybody and everybody can get into this data in any way that they can, whether it's just using an interactive map to be able to understand this information better, um, or dig, digging into the spreadsheets or diving into the ArcGIS files, we want to make sure that all of our information is accessible and we want to make sure that people are able to engage with it um, and push the work even further. Because again, Rick, it's people like you who are pushing this work for, uh, a lot further. Um, and if there had never been any sort of response to our, our first right. investigation. I'm sorry, yeah. Tristan, we're out of time. Really appreciate you and our other guests joining us today. Tune in to Native America Calling again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Support by Archaeology Southwest 
Did you know almost all major archaeological sites in the Southwest have been looted or vandalized? Looting and vandalism impact indigenous people, past, present, and future. Every day, countless Native American cultural items are lost or damaged forever through looting and vandalism. Federal and tribal laws protect archaeological resources. More information about ending archaeological resource crime and how to submit a tip at savehistory.org and on social media at Save History. February Healthcare Heart Month. Protect your healthcare. Eat safe. Eat healthy. Safety activities. Manage stress. Heart disease. Lani Manoro in the family. Talk Khadlui elders about your healthcare history. For more information, Indian healthcare provider visit healthcare.gov. Naka Kalalu 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.